about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Well, good evening. Uh, My name's Andrew, I'm the senior minister here. Uh, Welcome, especially if you're new or visiting, really great to have you with us, we hope you have a great evening. Um, There's a QR code on the front of the the handout thing you got on the way in. It may be that not everybody got uh, anywhere to bump a morning, and so we might have been a bit short, but that's that's a good thing. But if you want to get in touch, that is a good way to take you to an online phone, we'd love to hear that you've been here. Before I start, I'm just going to put this in at the beginning so I don't have to kind of weave weave it into my sermon. If you haven't seen the movie Chariots of Fire, 
you should see it. Okay, it's just it's unrelated to the sermon, to be honest, but this is where it comes from. Uh, this is one of the places. So see the movie. Um, it's a great movie. All right, this week um, we return to, it's a great week to be starting with us actually, uh, if you are, we return to a part of the Bible we began the year with, that we pick up at a new section. It's the books of 1 and 2 Kings, or First and Second Kings, people say it differently, and they're stories of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, similar names, don't worry, this is the only week where they really overlap, so after this it'll get easier. Um, we began the year, if, if some of you will remember, with the prophet Elijah. Uh, Now, towards the end of the year, we turn to Elijah's successor, Elisha. Um, Not all of us were here earlier in the year. That's that's fine. That's great. People joining. Uh, So I'll just do the briefest of recaps. It's just possible that those who were here may not remember every detail as well. Um, So Elijah the prophet appears at a time of extraordinary darkness in Israel's history. Extraordinary darkness. His story begins in 1 Kings 17. A king called Ahab is on the throne uh, with his pagan wife Jezebel, and together they undertake a deliberate program of spreading the worship of Baal, who's a foreign Phoenician deity, and of stamping out the worship of the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. But then Elijah appears, announcing God's judgment upon Ahab and his plans, and the tide is turned. Not without difficulty, but it is turned. We left off the story in chapter 19, where Elijah meets with God. Amazing chapter. Go back and read it if you, if, if you haven't read it before. Elijah meets with God, and God shows him the way ahead. Uh, He commands him to anoint a new line of kings and also to anoint a new person, Elisha, son of Shaphat, to succeed him. And Elisha is introduced there in chapter 19. We're picking up the story now about four or five chapters later in 2 Kings chapter 2. And a bit of water has flowed under the bridge uh, in between these. Uh, You can read it if you wanted Uh, Kez is going to mention later, we've just put out a Bible reading guide. It covers some of this, but you can actually just find this in in Bibles. It's it's there. You're welcome to read it. Um, Though the main thing that happens is the downfall of King Ahab. Basically, he dies and he falls just as Elijah said he would. But the thing is, the task that Elijah began is far from over. Um, Queen Jezebel remains and the kingdom remains a bit of a mess. But there is also a sense in these intervening chapters that Elijah has kind of, he's kind of done his dash. Uh, He he can't go much farther. He's out of puff. And he disappears from view only to reappear at the beginning of two kings. And that, as I said, is where we pick up the story. And we pick it up at a moment of transition, the moment of transition from Elijah to his successor, Elisha. Uh, Chapter 2 begins with the words, which we just read, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. Now, that is peculiar, isn't it? Um, But the the thing that is clear is that one way or another, it's the time of Elijah's departure. The drama of everything that unfolds in chapter 2, which we're actually going to look at over two weeks, this week and next week we're looking at chapter 2, it flows out of an awareness of this, that Elijah is leaving. 
the founder of this work, this giant. He's departing. What now will follow? What can follow? There is a a real sense of loss and anxiety in the story as it unfolds. Elijah is departing. How are we going to go on without him? How can this good work that has begun continue without him? Isn't it, isn't it going to fall apart? And right in the center of all these questions is the figure of Elisha, the anointed successor. All these questions and fears are focused on him. Because who is he compared with Elijah? How can this guy step into Elijah's shoes or more accurately wear his cloak, his, his mantle? We'll see the cloak Uh, a little later in the story. Now, before we move on to look at the story, it's worth noticing that this is a kind of anxiety that I think we're actually quite familiar with. It's the anxiety that comes when any successful founder or significant person departs. Think of the departure of Steve Jobs from Apple. Or think of the world reeling at the death of Queen Elizabeth. All of us probably know what it's like to feel anxious, actually, when a significant founder or person leaves an organisation. Some of you might know what that's like at work recently. Uh, Or when a, 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 a significant pastor leaves a church and it feels like the good work that has been begun and that's going on, now it's it's at risk, it's precarious. But it's not only when, with the departure of a founder that we feel this kind of anxiety. It, I think it's actually any change or transition that feels like it makes the good that we've known kind of at risk. Something like this kind of anxiety actually comes up continually in the cycles of human life as one generation gradually takes over from another as our grandparents and parents get older and pass away, and we take the responsibility they once held. Not all of us here are up to that stage, but I'm, I'm starting to feel it. Uh, and this, this sense of passing on, and, and now they're not, they're not being anybody actually kind of above you anymore. I mean, my mum's still alive, but... Um, do you know, I think this is actually a really... It's a, it's a really common feeling a sense of nervousness about this. And especially as the ground shifts under us and we find ourselves facing challenges that those who came before us didn't. We feel anxious about the loss of goods that we have known and we wonder whether those who now must take the lead, we wonder whether they're up to the task. We wonder whether we're up to the task. I reckon in our day, this kind of anxiety is pretty acute. I think a lot of people feel pretty strongly a sense of anxiety about the various transitions taking place in our world and whether we are losing things that we need to hold on to, whether we and the younger generations are going to be up to the task ahead. Well, the story of the departure of Elijah, it holds up a kind of mirror to these experiences and these anxieties. 
And I think that ultimately it helps us see that we don't need to despair in the face of the loss of those through whom we've been given good things. And it tells us that we can face the future with confidence and courage. But I don't want us to get ahead of ourselves. There's a bit of a journey to take before then. So let's first see how this story unfolds and how Elisha is found to be a worthy successor to Elijah. And then we'll turn to thinking about how the story speaks to us today. Okay, so first let's look at the story. At first, this story is, I think, quite funny. Basically, Elijah just walks around mysteriously and keeps telling Elisha to leave him, uh, which Elisha refuses, and all the while a bunch of onlookers keep asking him, do you know what's going to happen? And he keeps saying, yes, I know, shut up. Here it is. We'll read it again quickly. Uh, I'll, I'll skate through. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha says, no, I'm not going to leave you. And then this company of prophets at Bethel come out uh, to Elisha and they ask, do you know the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied. Be quiet. Happens again. Elijah said to him, they've they've walked on, they've, they've gone a bit further. Stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho fair bit further. And he replied, well, no, I'm, I'm going to keep going. I'm not going to leave you. The company of the prophets come out again. Don't you know what's happening? And Elisha said, I know, I know. Shut up. And Elijah said to him, stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. If you actually follow the course, it's really weird. They're kind of going back and forth. He's just wandering around saying, you should stop now. You should stop. Why don't you stop now? No, I'm going to keep going. And the company of the prophets, but they don't come out this time. They've done their dash. And it finishes in verse 6. So the two of them walked on. Elijah kind of stops asking him to stop. It's a, it's a bit of an amusing narrative. One thing worth noticing, though, is that parts of this story recall another great tra- transition in Israel's life from a founder to a successor. The story, did you notice, begins at a place called Gilgal. You'd have to have your Bible ears tuned pretty tight to know that that is actually a reference to the book of Joshua. Because that's the place where Joshua begins, from which Joshua begins his conquest of the promised land. But what that's doing is the story is reminding us of the transition from Moses to Joshua. If ever there was a time, a guy who was hard to follow, it's Moses, right? He led the whole nation out of Egypt and slavery and killed the whole Egyptian army through miracles. And Joshua's the guy who's got to take over. It's tough. It recalls that transition. Um, And what happens here in this story with Elisha is that Elisha's loyalty to Elijah, his faithfulness, is repeatedly tested. Elijah himself keeps telling him to stop, to stay, and the company of prophets, who, who seem to be a kind of band of prophets who'd emerged following Elijah, they keep reminding Elisha what a big thing is happening here. Now, even though it's, it's slightly amusing, remember that in, in real life this must have been deeply frightening because they didn't know what was going to happen. What was God going to do? 
And was Elisha worthy to witness it? Was it a good idea for him to be there? Remember that when Elijah met God back in 1 Kings 19, when Elijah meets God on the mountain, the whirlwind is there too, and it's so powerful, it, it, it pulls the mountains apart and smashes rocks. And Elijah has to hide his face from the glory and terror of the Lord. Is it really a good idea for Elisha to go on? Is he going to be all right? That's why the prophets keep coming out and saying, don't you know what's happening, Elisha? Would you have continued in the face of this? And with Elijah himself urging you to stay. What courage and kind of conviction about his task Elisha has here to face this and to continue to stay, to stay with Elijah when everyone else held back in fear. We see this verse 7, the company of the prophets stop and they won't go on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. So they go on together and all others stay back. Now here again, we are actually being reminded of Israel's history. If you know the books of Exodus and Joshua, or just, just let, let me tell you about it, um, we're being reminded. We're being reminded of Moses parting the Red Sea so that the Israelites can escape Egypt. It says the Israelites walked across on dry land. And we're being reminded of Joshua holding back the, well, he didn't do it, but when the Ark of the Covenant reaches the water, the waters of the Jordan River hold back so that the Israelites can cross. Both of these moments, we're being reminded of them here. These two men here, Elijah and Elisha, they kind of embody the story of Israel, the identity of Israel. Now, this is actually quite important to notice, I think. Um, this is a, a kind of a side in the sermon, but I think it's very interesting. It's very interesting that Israel's identity, Israel's story, is, is being embodied not by Israel's king, but by these two prophets. Right? Because who should be the one who embodies, who holds together, who represents the identity and the story of Israel? It should be the king. But it isn't because at this time in Israel's history, the monarchy is busted up and broken. And yet that doesn't mean that Israel is finished. It doesn't mean the story is over because the story of Israel and the identity of Israel are protected and held by the prophets, by the word of God that can always renew, can always bring new life to what has died. Now, even though this is not the main thrust of this sermon, I think there is an encouragement for us here. This is a subtle reminder that the death of institutions does not mean the death of God's work. Because God's word always runs on. And the wind of the Holy Spirit rushes wherever it pleases. And because of that, new life can always spring up again. Let the one who has ears to hear, and all those weighed down by the failures of institutions and the institutional church, 
here. It's encouraging, I think. The kingdom's a mess. The institutions are in tatters. But here are these prophets holding the story together, full of hope. Well, anyway, having crossed the final threshold together, Elijah asks Elisha a question, verse 9. When they'd crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. A double portion is the portion of the inheritance due to the eldest son. We know that particularly from the book of Deuteronomy. So Elisha is basically asking to be Elijah's heir here. Um, I don't think we should make too much of the word spirit here. I, I, at one point in thinking about this sermon, I thought we should, but now I, I think basically it just means Elijah's task and his ability to fulfill it. It means his calling and his empowering by God to do this ministry what we need to see is this is not a selfish request by Elisha. Elisha knows that what he's asking for is to share in Elijah's terrible ministry. Because it's a ministry of judgment as well as renewal. It's a ministry of life and death. He knows this ministry has, been, has asked an enormous amount of Elijah. And so I think, in a sense, what he's asking here is to be allowed to be the one who continues the work. He, he's stepping up. Verse 10, Elijah says, you've asked a difficult thing. Yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise it will not. Um, seeing and being able to see things beyond the normal realm will be a key theme in the story of Elisha. Actually, it's the kind of the guiding thread for our sermon series. Um, here it's Elisha's final test. If he sees Elijah when he's taken from him, then he, he will inherit this, but if not, he won't. If, Eli if Elisha is judged worthy to be there at the end and to see what happens, then he may follow where Elijah left off. He may pick up the work and continue. Well, he passes the test. Verse 11. Um, let's read this amazing bit again. As they were walking along and talking together, it's a, it's a picture of friendship and intimacy at this point. Suddenly, a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the horses and the, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha, Elisha saw him no more. He took hold of his garment and tore it in two. What exactly Elisha sees here, we can only imagine, but he does see. It's an extraordinary experience. They're walking along and then, and then they're divided by chariots and horsemen of fire. And Elijah goes up and Elisha's crying out. He's crying out, my father, because he's the eldest son, right? But then Elijah is gone and Elisha weeps for his loss and for Israel's loss. The great one has departed. And a profound emptiness and weight of responsibility descends upon him. 
We'll pick up the story next week and see what Elisha does with this. Um, But for now, let's just think about how this bit might speak to us. I mentioned before that this story reminds us of Joshua's succession of Moses, but it also reminds us of another key departure, and that is the departure of Jesus. Uh, Earlier in the year, we saw that in the Gospels, Elijah actually appears when Jesus is transfigured. That means he's he's kind of changed, his his appearance has changed on the mountain and, and Moses and Elijah appear with him and Luke's gospel tells us that they were speaking to him about his departure. Jesus' departure is actually, this story reminds us of it and points us to it and I think This story of Elijah's departure draws our attention, highlights two things about Jesus' departure. Let me suggest them to you. The first thing I think it it draws our attention to is the fact that unlike Elijah, Jesus' successes were not worthy of him. There is a, a striking parallel, I think, between Elisha's faithfulness to Elijah and Peter's denial of Jesus. Actually, Elisha is quite like the disciples in some other ways. So back in chapter 19, Elijah calls Elisha, just like Jesus does the disciples, and Elisha leaves everything and follows him, just like the disciples do. Well, now, when Elijah is departing, three times Elisha is told, to give up, to turn back, to be safe. And three times he presses on. But with Peter, if you remember the story, or even if you don't, the opposite happens. Three times on the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, Peter is asked whether he knows Jesus. And three times he denies it. He denies him. He fails. In fact, they all fail. All the disciples forsake him and Jesus is left alone. Jesus had no successor worthy of him. No one like Elisha was to Elijah, able to go on with him, able to stand with him at the end and be there, right there in the heart of it. Can I urge you to just feel the weight of this for a moment? To feel the weight of the fact that no one had the courage to stand with Jesus at the end. It's a a terrible indictment of all humanity, actually. It's a terrible indictment of our courage and our ability to hold on to the good that We know. I think it shows us that our fears about transitions and about the loss of goods we have known, actually they are well-founded at one level. We should have doubts about our ability to face the challenges that lie ahead and not to lose the good that's been handed on to us because the disciples couldn't even stand by Jesus. If there was anyone who was good enough, strong enough, clearly right enough that it was worth standing by, it was him. 
but no one did. That's the first thing this story of the departure of Elijah reminds us of, I think, but thankfully there is a second thing that this story ought to point us to, and that is the courage and faithfulness of Jesus himself. Because Elisha doesn't just point us to Peter, he also reminds us of Jesus himself. Jesus followed John the Baptist, just like Elisha followed Elijah. And like Elisha, Jesus was found worthy of the task to which he was called. Time and again, Jesus was tested, tempted, urged to fall back, not to go on. The gospel stories tell us especially of 40 days of intense testing in the desert. But there were more. Friends, nobody had to have more courage and more conviction and more perseverance than Jesus. He had to press on despite the unbelief of his family, his family standing and saying, oh, he's a bit, he's lost it. The ridicule of his friends, the hatred and patronizing indifference of those who had power. He had to face crowds intent on killing him and his closest friends telling him that he was making a terrible mistake and then finally betraying him and abandoning him. He had to face all that and he did not fail. He did not fail. He pressed on and on and on when all others fell back. He faced the most intense fear and loss in faith and courage all the way to death. And by doing so, he won through. He won through death and judgment to life and freedom and righteousness. It was the most extraordinary act of heroism. In fact, he was far greater than both Elijah and Elisha. Both of them were great, right? Both of them were there. They stood in the whirlwind and saw horses and chariots of fire. The presence of God opened up, but neither of them was great enough to be consumed by that for the sake of others. But that's what Christ did, friends, for the disciples' failure to stand by him, for Peter's denial of him, and for all the ways in which we fall short of him and what he calls us to. He entered the whirlwind of God's holiness and gave his life that we might be forgiven and live do you know, in fact, even Elijah and Elisha would have been consumed in the whirlwind were it not for Christ's sacrifice. That's a thought that messes with time, but actually that's, that's the truth of it. It's only Christ's sacrifice that enabled even them to be present with God in that way. And that is why the disciples, despite their failures, actually got to see Jesus ascend into heaven. Do you know the, the, the Gospels and the book of Acts record the story of this? As the disciples see Jesus ascend. Why did they get to do that? They were not worthy of it. They had failed him, but they were there. 
And they were there. Because he had, he had overcome their unworthiness. And that's why we need not despair either. Despite their failure and our failure to be worthy of Jesus, to stand beside him. Because he has been worthy for us. He's been worthy enough. He has done the, the, the final perfect heroic deed once and for all. And that means our future and our freedom and our good. If we're with him, we cannot lose it. We cannot, it cannot slip from our hands because it does not depend on us and our worthiness anymore. It doesn't depend on our not failing because we did fail and we do fail. But Christ died to cover those failures and to ensure that his work was not lost. Okay, well, where does all of that leave us? I know that's a lot of kind of Bible back and forth, but this is what these Old Testament stories, stories can do. They can sometimes give us a new angle on things we know well. But let's finish by asking where does this leave us? Because I want to suggest, I want to say that this leaves us, in a funny way, standing where Elisha stood. Seeing the surface of things torn open and heaven bursting through. What on earth do I mean by that? I mean that in Jesus, through his death and resurrection, by putting faith in that, we have been brought into the presence of God. We have seen heaven opened up, no less really than Elisha experienced here. All through the New Testament, you know, Christians are told to make sure they're not mesmerized by the surface of things, by the way things appear here and now. We fix our eyes, writes Paul, not on what is seen, this is in 2 Corinthians, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Or in Colossians, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Why is this? Why are Christians meant to kind of set their minds and their hearts, which means to think about and to pay attention to and to remember heaven and the reality that Jesus is at the right hand of God? Why are we supposed to do this? Because through Christ, that's where we have been taken. Look at what the book of Hebrews says. It says it even in even stronger terms, it says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There's a lot in that, but basically this is a picture of glory. The glory of heaven. And angels in all creation gathered around the throne to worship the Messiah and the living God. We are not worthy to stand in this place, friends. Oh, maybe you are somehow, but I don't think you are. I'm definitely not. 
seeing and knowing the truth of heaven, having it opened up to us, we did not prove our worth like Elisha, having passed the test, but, but we have come there by God's grace. And you know, that can empower us. Sometimes people think that thinking too much about heaven, sometimes people say that thinking too much about, you know, these heavenly spiritual things and glory, that that takes our minds off the realities of here and now and getting to business with doing good here and now. I think that's nonsense. I think that's just nonsense. That is not how human beings work. Actually, this vision of the throne and of the glory to be revealed can empower us for life here and now. Do you know, it was this vision that empowered Elisha. Um, We'll see this as we go on in our series, but we'll also see it in a passage we won't get to in our series because it's heaps later. But in chapter 13 of 2 Kings, Elisha is on his deathbed. And the king of Israel, who's called Jehoash, comes to him and he weeps. And listen to what he says. Now, Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Don't worry, this is not a whole other sermon about a whole other passage. Elisha had been suffering. And Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Isn't this interesting? That this is what the king says at Elisha's deathbed. It shows us, I think, what lay at the heart of Elisha's ministry. This vision of heaven, of the glory behind the surface of things. Don't let the glory slip from your vision, brothers and sisters. As we face anxious challenges today, as we grieve the loss of goods we have known and loved, as we tremble at the tasks laid before us that seem too great and and maybe are too great. Don't let this truth slip from your view that through the perfect courage of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, those who trust in him have been taken into the whirlwind And we stand before the great throne with innumerable angels and horses and chariots of fire. And all is well. All is at peace. All is calm. And so we need not fear, but can calmly, patiently turn our eyes to the good works that lie before us here and now for better or worse, with sure hope and steadfast joy. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.